0: Just to reiterate, because sometimes these things, you know, it takes us hearing things a few times for them to really land in us somewhere. But this, this point in our evolutionary journey as a human species is really about reclaiming the wholeness of who we are. And that cannot exist without a deep relationship with the land. It's what's at the heart of every indigenous community and culture. And, and when that got stripped away, we went awry. And so any movement in that direction, you know, any garden that gets planted, any afternoon that gets spent under a tree by a river, all of that is is so, so, so important.
1: Hi, I'm Benji Ross.
2: And I'm Anna Prepara.
1: And we want to welcome you to Awakening Lands.
2: Where we aim to give land a voice and share stories of humans who are learning to live in ways that nurture and animate life.
1: Here, you'll find unfolding stories of regeneration that are happening all over the planet. And feel the story of humans learning to come home. We will highlight the people working to create the possibility of regenerating whole landscapes. We're calling these people landscape leaders.
2: The easiest way to spot them is by their devotion to their people and place. They are essential to regeneration, and we want to share their stories in order for them to see one another and for us all to see the pathways they've taken. It's in this way we'll also see entire bioregional narratives coming to life.
1: And we're aiming to do more than tell stories. The Earth needs her humans to come together as one to become more than we've been. Let's co-create the spaces to do so. Let's author the stories that show us how. Are you in? Okay, welcome everyone. Today, we are joined by landscape leader, Gwen Garcelon. I hope Gwen doesn't mind that title. I feel it suits you well. Uh, Gwen's career path has included community organizing, social entrepreneurship, sustainability consulting, local food systems development, and executive coaching. Wen is oriented towards seeing the big picture. She's an advocate for listening to and seeing the wholeness of local landscapes, for encouraging or engaging with the full spectrum of human emotion and experience, for bringing whole communities to the table, for making room to be the best mom she can be, and of course for fun. Uh, Her focus through all of this is also how we as communities, as humans, are called to evolve in this moment of great adaptive pressure. The planet needs us to become more than we as a collective have been, and from what I've seen, Gwen embodies a beautiful response to that call. So Gwen, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today?
0: Um, I'm good. I'm really happy to be having this conversation. These are always the best of times when we can share our truth.
1: Indeed.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for being here with us, Gwen. And as we are starting this podcast, uh, we're kind of testing out different rituals that we want to include. And one of the things that we have done in previous recordings is we go around and we we share gratitudes or what we're grateful for. So we would love to hear what you're grateful for.
0: I was thinking of that this morning. And um and really grateful that we are more than three-dimensional beings. I'm so grateful for the the unseen in the world that I know to be a a, a force of love. You know, I I just I just know that in my toenails mm-hmm. and. I'm so grateful for all of the support of, I'm just going to say it, angels, guides, people who have passed on, and the un- the unified field itself, all here to support us. We just have
1: to say the word.
2: That's beautiful. Thank you, Gwen. Benji, what are you grateful for?
1: Uh, yeah, I am grateful for humor. I'm grateful for for the fact that that's a thing. You know, I just sometimes I think about that and I'm like, what is that? What's the function? I'm so glad it's there regardless of what it is. I love jokes. It's such a power to to pull you out of a a tough moment, a tough spot. It's a it's like the trickster that we have in our 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 social dynamics. And so, uh ever grateful for that. How about you, Anna? Yeah,
2: well, and I feel like, you know, that just makes us all th- so three-dimensional, like like when said I'm grateful for my family, grateful for my friends, grateful for my dog. Um, I'm also really grateful for my nice warm house because today it is quite cold. It feels very much like fall up here in Buffalo, New York. So um grateful for being warm. <laughs> yeah, so great. Uh, well, let's get started with the interview. Gwen, land connection. It's a huge part of who you are. It's a huge part of what you do. And... We were wondering, can you share a little bit of the origin story uh, that kind of got you so devoted to your relationship with landscapes?
0: I think I think always those things start early in our lives. You know, those of us who are really lucky to have parents who spend time with us outside develop that naturally because I think it is inherent to all of us. We all have a connection to nature as part of our human selves you know there's there's tons of research on this. Our nature connection is actually a is an important part of how we develop as children, and it continues to be a very important part of our lives so yeah i I would say that's the origin is just being you know on camping trips with my with my family and out in the woods and on the rivers and and just feeling how much the, how deep the connection was with my family. Because my father traveled a lot and we, I didn't see him much. and But when we had a vacation, when we were camping, that connection was so deep and wonderful. And so I think about that when I think about nature as well, just sort of being deeply connected, being deeply held, being more seen all of those things that um that I, I kind of developed
1: early on oh wow that is uh, such a beautiful lead into the next question because now i'd like to to surface your relationship with your two teenagers mm-hmm. um and i want to also bring in this idea of of connection with the land your spirituality i know you have a really deep meditative practice curious how that comes into your parenting. Uh, are there any lessons, insights, or stories that you can share with us uh, to give us a sense of what that's like for you and and what it's like for your kids to have a mom like you?
0: Yeah, um, it's an interesting time in life to be asking that question because when you have teenagers, you feel like everything you do is wrong and you spend a lot of time feeling very separate from them and they're going off and doing their own thing. But I do, I, I am so grateful that we, they know, they just know that when we have time, you know, like when they have time off from school, we're gonna go look for an outdoor adventure to do. And, you know, I, we've been so many places around here. We don't travel by plane um, very much. I think they've only been on a plane maybe a couple of times in their life to see family. But we travel around the West, and it's so incredibly gorgeous. We could do this our whole life and not find, you know, all of the amazing places. You know, with them, I I think when you have a connection to nature and that's a, and spirituality in general, and that's a central part of your life, that's going to be how you parent, because it's who you are and so we we have lots of rituals of places that we go like this weekend we're going to a place we've been many times before and it's like going to see an old friend they are developing these relationships with places and i think that that's so important that we have places that we go that we feel like they are part of our family you know part of something we love so deeply places that we know we've seen them in different weather situations and times of year and times of our lives you know they have memories of being this place that we're going this weekend they have memories of being there when they could barely walk um and we're just in awe of these places so yeah those are do you wanna ask a, an, another part of that? Cause I, I don't know that that was a big question. <laughs>
1: you know, I'm not sure I got it all. I thought that was an exceptional answer actually. Yeah, no, it uh, really painted a picture of of how they're growing up, how they're benefiting from having a mom that really appreciates land connection. Uh, I think that's a, a great story. Yeah, and Anna, I think there's something you wanted to say.
2: Yeah, well, it just struck me that we've been exploring what, we would call story of place for the Colorado River Basin. Uh, That was part of the, we had a, for our listeners, we had a landscape leader retreat where we invited people from all across the Colorado River Basin to join in um, a retreat where we talked about how we could all work together to collaborate and regenerate the Colorado River. And one of the first steps to knowing how to do that is to develop story of place, and really knowing what's the place's potential, the history of the place, the culture of the place. And it just strikes me that you are developing that in your family by staying within your your region, by really exploring, by going back to the same places and developing a relationship with that place. You're getting to know it so well, your home and, and these surrounding areas too. So I just wanted to name that. and um I wonder if you have um if you have that in mind when you're taking your kids' places that you're really developing a story for them, how you ensure that they're learning these processes all along the way of connecting and knowing the really feeling like they know the place
0: yeah, there's um there's a funny thing that we say that you know, a lot of us who work with retreats on the land and taking people into nature for healing purposes, that, that when you have a relationship with a place, that place does the work. You know, you can just take people there and and the work will be done within that relationship that you have with that place. And I think that's what happens with the kids. You know, we, when we go places, they get to observe a place over the course of their lifetime. They see the changes, they see what's beautiful about it, they, they get to know what it's like in different kinds of climate situations. They, they look at the reservoirs around here and see them dropping, see when they're full. Just by being out in places that they get to observe over a number of years, they develop through just their own observation and knowing, you know, a real knowing of a place. And that, that just takes time to develop. It just takes their own observation and having fun in a place. And it's so beautiful to see them interact with a place and get to feel that relationship of really being held in a place. That's one of the most beautiful things for me.
2: When we were at our Landscape Leader Retreat, you helped facilitate a session where you took us out to um, Lost Lake and you invited us all to join in really getting a sense of the place and being out in nature by ourselves and really developing that relationship One of the things that we were struck by while taking part in the sessions that you delivered was the acceptance of grief and balancing it with land connection and spirituality. This feels particularly relevant in this time in history because so many people are experiencing eco-anxiety and eco-grief. What you were just describing um, with your retreats, uh, can you share any anecdotes or stories that can demonstrate the transformative healing potential of deepening land connection?
0: Boy, so many. And it's so, our relationship to grief is so um, <laughs> not helpful. <laughs> mm-hmm. It It's something that's been stripped out of our culture. And, you know, Brene, Brene Brown, says that grief is second only to shame as an emotion that we avoid. I mean, I've had such a lifelong journey with grief, having lost my dad at a young age and thinking I'd grieved at different times and then realized, huh, another thing here that needs some some attention. And I think that's what grief is for us, What we know about it is that it restores our wholeness. There's something about the feeling of sadness and being with loss that allows us to get to the other side where we've, where we can integrate that a bit and get in touch with our vulnerability, which then gets us in touch with our deep connection. So when we grieve the land, when we grieve things that, are, that we're losing, when we grieve species that we care about, it doesn't make us feel hopeless or helpless. It actually restores our ability to feel our connection to all the beauty that remains. And that is something that's so, so, so necessary if we're going to continue to do this work because we're going to continue to be up against loss all around us and people who are experiencing loss at different times for different things. And to to really accept that a grief process, a grief ritual, a regular grief process allows us to continue to sort of maintain our ability to be more deeply connected to what we're doing to the earth to the things that we love so it's it's not something that a lot of people will say oh i've been through the grief and now i'm just done and and i feel like that's that's something that we we have so many gifts to continue to receive from grief process and whenever i bring people out and create a container in which they can have that really deep grief process. It's followed by an immense amount of joy because the, the extent to which we experience the deep loss and deep darkness feelings is the extent to which we can experience joy and light otherwise we're operating kind of uh, i'm okay i'm fine everything's great but if we can really let ourselves get into you know a regular practice of of acknowledging how it feels to be alive right now then we can also experience the deep gratitude and joy and agency that we have still
1: mm-hmm. to meet this
0: potential Mm -hmm. evolutionary, mind-blowing
1: moment. Mm, Yeah. And well, that's beautiful. To bring in the topic of bioregionalism, you reflected on how approaching our grief, processing our grief is a process of restoring wholeness. That could be a definition for bioregionalism. It's a process of restoring wholeness in the landscape. It seems to me that it makes logical sense that in order for us to be able to do such a thing, we have to restore wholeness in ourselves first, first and foremost. Because our ability to reweave, reintegrate our deeply fragmented landscapes will require that we as humans know how to get along. and We can care for the relationships between us. That requires that we care for the the, the wholeness of ourselves. So yeah, you know, what what a what an interesting way to see grief in a bioregional lens, it seems essential, um, the processing of it.
0: And the acceptance piece is so big because when we accept that we have been and continue to be a part of a culture that is not serving the health of bioregions, that is doing the fragmenting, is doing the all the kinds of destruction that we are a part of, that takes a lot to accept that we're doing that that we've been a part of that it's not like we have to sign ourselves up for a flogging and beat ourselves up continually about it but there is a sadness in being you feeling kind of trapped in a culture that no longer really resonates with a vision that we have for the world and What a healthy way of living, what a healthy way of relating to the land would be. That takes a lot to, and we need to help each other be able to take that in continually because we still get in our cars every day. We still go and do all the consumptive things that our culture has told us are measures of success. And that takes a lot to repattern and to step away from.
2: And I know that you and I have really been on the same page in a lot of our meetings or our talks that we've been in. We both recognize how important acceptance is. My background is in acceptance and commitment therapy and pro-social. And I know that those things really resonate with you. And I'm wondering if you wanted to share anything that you have found as you've learned more about pro-social that you think has been really valuable to you or in any of your work?
0: Yeah, I feel like I've been doing pro-social before pro-social was even a thing. I just, because intuitively it makes sense. If we're going to be about leading evolutionary processes and really taking on the bigness of what we're taking on, you know, as you both have mentioned previously, we need to take that on in ourselves. We need to always be about the business of accepting what we push away in ourselves, all the shadow work, you know, that needs to be a a daily thing. And it's no mystery to me that people like the Dalai Lama and so many others have compassion as a central practice. Because it takes a lot of compassion to do this work. <laughs> it takes compassion for ourselves, for our humanness and our shadows that are always at play, and for the others that we bump up against, and just for what we might not be able to fix. This is what matters to me. It's like, how do we be human beings? How do we keep being human beings as we're doing this?
1: It's hard. It takes a lot of compassion
0: and acceptance.
1: Really well said. You used a phrase that stuck with me in your response, the bigness of what we're doing. So I want to now look at the bigness of what you're doing in the Roaring Fork. You know, how you've been weaving together the good folks, the good folks doing good things for the land in the Roaring Fork. You've been hosting these things called design charrettes. One of the areas of of focus uh, has been working to develop the Roaring Fork Food Alliance. Um, We'll return to, to design charrettes more broadly in a moment, but we're wondering this Roaring Fork Food Alliance is broadly aiming to grow and integrate the food system locally. Can you share your sense of the current state of local food in the Roaring Fork and and more specifically what the Alliance aims to do?
0: I think the current state is very much like the current state of local food systems anywhere, which is that they are drastically behind where we would really love to see them people even that live in places like vermont who we and we think of them as you know, like oh they've you know got all this awareness about local food and they must be way far ahead they're still only producing maybe 3 to 5% of the food that that their population consumes only producing that much locally it's a big deal to to think about how we're going to build resiliency back into our ability to feed ourselves. I was so struck. I was at the R-Day conference. It started here years ago in the Aspen area as a renewable energy conference. And so this was 2011, I believe. And I heard Lester Brown of the Earth Institute say that food was the weak link in our ability to live through what we're being asked to live through. And that struck me, I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten that moment when he said that and I really got, okay, this is this is the place, this is the place to engage. And that's when we started the, the Roaring Fork Food Policy Council. We were gonna start a transition movement thing, but we felt like food was more galvanizing. I had just spent 10 years in the um, working for an NGO in the movement to end hunger and poverty. And food was of course, you know, central during that whole time. And I started to see it as central to the ability of communities to be able to be functional in the future. And then I realized it was actually a really healing force too. People are healed by food. They're healed when they come together around food. Growing food regeneratively and organically heals the soil. It heals the water systems in an area. It's just at the center of so much that we're talking about in terms of taking on the health of a bioregion. If we're going to be humans living in a bioregion, we've got to figure out how to feed ourselves in a way that is honoring of the place where we are, that doesn't just degrade it but that gives back and is sensitive to what the water cycles and the animals and, and everything here needs. That has been um, just something that continues to drive me because it's also very simple. It's simple in a lot of ways to go out and plant a seed and plant a garden and to learn how to do that. There are so many resources now to help people learn how to grow food. So anyone can do it anywhere. And it's so empowering. That's another piece. That's the pro-social piece of this is that we need to be about doing things that leave people feeling empowered. One of my colleagues, um, Elen pevic has been um, so prolific in her service to getting children on the land in school gardens, learning how to create gardening as part of our educational um, system. And what we see is that when, when kids get involved in growing food, their mental health improves, their anxiety decreases, there's nothing about it. That isn't healing and evolutionary and what we need as humans right now. So that's something I love about food systems work. It's also extremely challenging because in our area, there are so many different nonprofit organizations and coalitions that get started, and people, you know, are so well-meaning and and also see this as central to our ability to be healthy here. But there's still not the level of collaboration and connectivity within those efforts that would allow them to serve the bigness of what we face. We've gotta, at some point, figure out how to work in concert and what are the systems and the the mechanisms that will support that kind of collaboration. And that's always been my inquiry about the Roaring Fork Food Alliance, is that how can it be a mechanism to serve that kind of greater connectivity, greater ability to know the food system as a whole, and to understand the leverage points and how to work together more. That's been my only purpose with the Roaring Fork Food Alliance. And it's what I continue to kind of look for. How can it serve?
1: I feel like that gives us such a sense of, of what the design charrettes are about as well, just as a whole. It's this function, this service that we as landscape leaders, that we as bi-regional weavers can provide these spaces of integration that just don't happen otherwise. I'm, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about, you know, what has been your overall strategy with these design charrettes? Um, how have you invited people into this this conversation? How have you invited people into seeing the story of possibility of bi-regionalism? I mean, that's a really big question. You can field that however you want. Yeah, I'm just curious if anything's coming up for you.
0: You know, the first thing that comes up is the at the center of all the organizing I've ever done, which is to start by finding out who's doing what, really understanding who's out there doing something that's relevant to whatever this is that I've you know, been tasked with understanding more deeply. So that's always the first order of business is go talk to people, go do a lot of listening, invite people into a conversation where you get to know them and why they're doing what they're doing. What helps is that the other two women who have been part of this sort of core team, we've been in this valley a long time. We've been doing what we do for a long time and know a lot of people. So we know a lot of the landscape leaders tangentially, if not personally. And we are continuing to build a list of organizations who have some kind of Purview on the land, but we did know quite a few people, me through you know a lot of the food systems work and being an environmentalist for a long time. So that helps to have a bit of relationship, a lot of people who trust you, they know that you care about this and that you're not going away and they know your background. That kind of trust is really gold as a place to start. And then there are relationships that need to be rebuilt. Because, you know, you can bring people in and, you know, you may have had a bump in the road with them in the past. And that needs to get healed. Back to your question, we all have a big network and we're inviting people into a conversation because we want to hear, first and foremost, over their years of land stewardship, what are they hearing and feeling from the land? We want to, with them, give the land a seat at the table through our relationships with it. That's been a major piece of the design charrettes that we've been doing, is to really listen to people and invite them to tell their stories of the land. What do they see as leverage points? What are are they struggling with? And it's funny, in our last charrette, we're doing our seventh one today, actually. It was a group of three women, and and all of them talked about their own personal struggles with the despair that they carry around in their back pocket. And I felt like that was incredibly important for each of us to voice that, because that's part of how we connect to each other and connect to doing this work, because everybody feels it. I think people are really ready for this conversation they also feel the complexity and the bigness of it. They know that. They're all working, even in their smaller purviews of the big picture, there's so much complexity and bigness and urgency. And they feel the the real challenge of trying to keep bolstered enough to keep doing the work. Those, I think, are the two things that really have consistently come up the bigness and complexity and how we be human and continue to support our our mental health you know as we as we move forward
2: well I think your style of community organizing is really holding what the community hears and how they relate to the land and as you mentioned, knowing who's out there and what they're doing and really making sure that you're listening to those people. I think that that's a wonderful way that you're moving forward. You're really allowing the community and the land to set the purpose and set the direction of how you move forward. Um, I think that that's such such a critical component to what you're doing there. And I'm struck, too, by the amount of pro-social that is being used in this process, too. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with pro-social, it is a combination of behavioral science and economics and evolutionary theory that informs how groups of people and groups of groups of people are able to collaborate. So you're really, you're bringing together people who are from different organizations, different groups, different neighborhoods, and you are weaving through it a shared purpose and alignment. And you are giving everybody an equal voice to share in these design charrettes. And I think that that's just, it's incredibly powerful. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to like the structure of the design charrette. What does a design charrette look like and how you're how you're able to hold this process and have people feel included.
0: We start with why the three of us are doing this. We've given enormous amount of volunteer time to it, as we have to many other projects in our past um, and present. So we give we start with that why, and we invite others to do that too, why they're doing what they do. That's difficult. And confronting, we t- we give a little background on the bioregional effort. You know Joe's book and the process he's been through, and the others who are part of this. We talk about other efforts like uh, what's being uh, spearheaded by the Commonland Land Foundation. We talk a little bit about those big landscape scaled efforts that are going on, and that what's different about them is. This awareness and commitment to pro-social process, that that's what's, that's the special sauce. That's what's going to allow us to continue to bring our best and whole selves to this work, which it's going to require if we're going to be truly evolutionary, we're going to have to bring our whole true selves and continue to do that work to, to support each other to do that we we talk about the eight core design principles of Eleanor Ostrom's around pro social. And it was wonderful in the last charrette a gal who had just done her PhD, she's like, oh yeah, we all we all talk about Eleanor Ostrom and Pro Social.
2: I'm like, oh yeah. great.
0: it's out <laughs> there. It's happening. So, you know, that's a bit of a preface. And then then we invite people to tell their story. We say, you know, you've been a land steward, you've been working on water issues for how many decades now you've, you know, you have a strong connection to this place. What are you hearing and feeling from the land? If you were going to speak for the land right now, what would you say? We're inviting it to be have a seat at the table. So we invite everybody to share and we time those so that everybody has a a time that's theirs to, to, to use. And after that, we go into an integration period where we take out maybe leverage points that people have mentioned, um, opportunities that we're seeing, focus points that are emerging from the conversation, and we just have an unstructured dialogue to pull out the the real juice of what's emerging in the in the charrette, and then we do some action steps. Like if there's anything that we want to follow up on, any meeting that we want to have one on one or people want to have with each other. It's been amazing.
1: Yeah. I hope uh, one of these days I could head over McClure Pass and and join. I feel like I'd learn a lot. Um, great to have you. Yeah, let's make that happen. And so we've talked a lot about your approach and what's happening in the roaring fork. I feel like you've told a really good story of what a landscape leader does, some of the things that they that they offer their community. Talked about food systems, and you've talked about seeing the whole landscape. And I feel like we're seeing a really full picture that can really model what a landscape leader is. But I, I want to bring it back to the story of Gwen, because I think that for our listeners, for landscape leaders, uh, for aspiring landscape leaders, it's really helpful and orienting and inspiring to hear Personal stories. I'm so curious. How did you find yourself in the position where you're facilitating, where you're seeing the landscape scale? Um, yeah, what's your backstory there? How'd you find mm. yourself here?
0: You know, it, it's always hard to say, like, when did that start? I don't know how I would do what I do without my spiritual life and path being at the absolute center of my life. It's been the evolutionary force that's driven everything. So, yeah, I mean, I, I spent a year living with my meditation teacher in my late 20s, and that's been really foundational to, to everything that I do. It inspires me, it supports me, keeps me from going off the deep end when I feel like I get close to that sometimes. And then, you know, there was another point that I'd been a ski instructor and a river guide for a while, you know, just really throwing myself into relationship with the mountains and the rivers. And then I saw a colleague of mine at the time was volunteering for an organization, the NGO that I ended up working with, Results in the Movement End Hunger and Poverty. And I just started as a volunteer and then I ended up on staff for 10 years. And I think what I would say to people is this work requires that you just start where you are and start doing the scary things of reaching out in your communities, of convening conversations in your communities. You know, it could even start as a book club. But at some point you need to get out on a skinny branch. Something you've never done before and challenge yourself to get outside your comfort zone. And I feel like that's kind of where my whole life has been outside my comfort zone. So it's not something I even think about anymore. But there are times when I've been like, wow, okay, this is another big skinny branch that I'm going out on. Like when I, in 2008, when I lost that job that I'd been with for so long, working in the the hunger and poverty realm. And I decided at that moment that I would never, ever, because I was looking at, you know, like executive director of a nonprofit, you know, there's so many things that I could have done at that moment. And I was like, I just cannot do anything that doesn't feel like it's what I'm here in this life on this planet to do. I will not be able to sustain my life. <laughs> If I'm not doing what feels absolutely purposeful for me to do. So that's meant I've had to not ever be able to buy a house, probably, you know, not send my kids to college. But those things at this point in my life, not even a question if it meant that I couldn't be doing this work that I'm doing right now. And my kids see that too. And they don't even really want to be in the educational institution as it is at the moment anyway. It's like when you're doing what's absolutely true for you to do, you just keep doing it. And that's the gift in and of itself. So I, I went back to school when I was in my 30s, wanted to get a leadership degree, but I wanted it to be deeply spiritual and, and mostly experiential. So it took me a long time to find a program that would allow me to kind of design it myself and have spiritual development, personal development at the core of it. And that would allow me just to go out and try stuff because you can't learn leadership in a book. You just cannot. It's absolutely experiential. So like back to what I was saying at the very beginning, go out and find something to throw yourself into that takes you out of your comfort zone, that allows you to serve something that's deeply meaningful to you. That's pretty much how to learn leadership and be willing to fail. I mean, I've had so many efforts that I thought were gonna go one way and it was the wrong timing or there was more relationship that needed to be built. But again, it's like you only learn that experientially. It's just not something I think you can learn any other way. So mentorship is important, I think.
1: Absolutely, and I, I sense that that uh, Anna has a question. I, I just have a really quick comment. I want to just name the importance of inspiration in all of this. I was about to jump out of my shoes while you were talking towards the end. I'm so fired up and inspired by your story and what you're just sharing. I feel mentored at this moment in a sense. You know, I I feel that this energy is so valuable. Uh, and so I want to thank you for that excellent response. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do this afternoon, but I'm I'm motivated right now. I think that others will feel the same way when they listen to this. And yeah, Anna, if, if you want to take it from here.
2: Yeah. So I guess I have kind of two comments. Uh, the first one that you are not the first person that I've run into in this line of work that has talked about creating your own program, uh, Joe Brewer who started the design school for regenerating earth did that himself in his graduate program because the institutions that we have nowadays really are not designed for helping us get on this pathway. It needs to be, as you said, experiential. It needs to combine so many different disciplines that are not currently working together, spirituality, science, ecology, all of these coming together so I think it's wonderful that you took the initiative and are a great example of how you can design your own your own pathway in a way and I also it struck me that really so much of what you are speaking to, uh, going you know putting yourself out on that that thin branch and putting yourself out there that's all acceptance it's all acceptance of that fear of rejection, that fear of failure, sitting with it, holding it lightly, and still moving forward towards your towards your values and engaging in that committed action. And I think that that is so critical for anybody who wants to make a difference in the world because it's going to be really hard, but always holding your values as your guiding star and not letting these internal thoughts and emotions get in the way. They're not physical, they're, they're mental. In a lot of ways, and um, how can you continue moving forward towards yeah, towards your values? So I, I loved your response as well.
1: Guys, this just feels like a really like impactful, potent place for us to come to an end. We're we're ending on a really strong, um, meaningful note. I feel. Um, Gwen, is there any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Just to reiterate.
0: Because sometimes these things, you know, it takes us hearing things a few times for them to really land in us somewhere. But this, this point in our evolutionary journey as a human species is really about reclaiming the wholeness of who we are. And that cannot exist without a deep relationship with the land. It's what's at the heart of every indigenous community and culture. And when that got stripped away, we went awry. So any movement in that direction, any garden that gets planted, any afternoon that gets spent under a tree by a river, all of that is, is so, so, so important. And it's also, I mean, it's not going to be bliss, like when you go and have reflective time, something I've noticed a lot over the years as a coach is that people tend to avoid reflective time because they're first of all not very familiar with it. They're not familiar with themselves. and it's always a little awkward to be around someone you're familiar you're unfamiliar with. And that takes some some real commitment to be with everything that arises in the silence of reflection, that's where the real compassion is necessary. So just to say that, but on the other side of anything that's difficult to look at is freedom. This I know for sure guaranteed because I've been practicing in it and experimenting with it and testing it for decades now. On the other side of everything that's hard to look at in ourselves and in our culture and in the world is greater freedom, greater love, greater connection. It just is is a guarantee. So if you're feeling a bump in the road, you know, some despair, some loneliness, self-loathing, whatever it is. If you can be with that and ask, what is the gift of this for me? Because nothing shows up for us just willy nilly. It's all showing up for us, for our highest and best, for our greatest evolutionary potential. So if we can inquire like that Rumi poem, The Guest House, where you welcome in every emotion, every weirdo, every beggar and thief and welcome them and know that they are there for you as a gift. There's always freedom, greater integration, greater wholeness, greater ability to serve on the other side. So I guess I'll just leave that.
1: Thank you. Well, if there's one thing you're doing is you're serving Uh, and what we're trying to do maybe more than anything with these conversations is to to lift up the people that we are calling landscape leaders to to really clarify that role and to share stories that help people to see why these people are essential um they really matter they are i i personally think that they are the 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 most impactful thing that we can focus on to bring greater regeneration to our landscapes i think you've demonstrated that through a lot of your storytelling and so with that when? How can we support you? How can we invite listeners to support you? Do you have anywhere that you can point them? Um, and then we'll we'll add uh, any links to our show notes as well. Mm. I wish I had better places to send people.
0: Um, they could go to my website at gwengarcelon.com and find their way to my podcast slash radio show. There's six years of of interviews that I've done with. Some landscape leaders, other leaders in the community in different ways, people working in different capacities, talking about how their inner game, the name of the show is The Inner Game, how their inner game supports them to make a bigger difference. So that's some way you could get to know me better if you're interested. I'm always posting my upcoming retreats that um, are available for landscape leaders and um, anyone looking to create a more embodied relationship with the earth um, and bring that into their life and work. If anybody's interested in coaching, I'm still doing that. I have a handful of clients that, um, that I work with regularly to support their leadership during this time. So those are all some ways.
2: Yeah, well, and I just wanted to say that uh, if the quality of this interview it indicates anything, it's that I'm I'm very excited to hear your radio show where you interview people and you give them space. So thank you so much, Gwen, for joining us today. It was wonderful hearing your story, and we hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful day and have fun going out to the desert with your kids this weekend.
1: Thank you. I'm jealous.
0: Thanks so much, you guys. Really a pleasure to converse with you. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Gwen. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration,
1: if you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all this can be found in the show notes. Thanks. And please tell your landscape we said hello.